welcome to another episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. I'm Katie. I'm Alan. And we're still married. And today we are talking about something that is very tender in most marriages. Ours included. Ours included. And it has taken us a lot of years to talk about this subject. We, we talked about talking about this topic from the beginning. From the beginning. And we weren't ready. There's even, I think, probably portions of this topic that we're not going to discuss publicly or get into big detail about. Right. Exactly. Because I think that it's one of those topics that is, uh, in the church culture, is really hard for people to talk about, number one. And you'll see that throughout the episode, because we have quite the history with it. And that's number one. And number two, especially in a marriage where you are just learning communication skills, and you're just learning the tools to get through a topic like this, it can be one of those that you come back to over and over and over again, because you have to take a break and a timeout, because this is a very emotionally charged subject. So we just wanted to give a disclaimer here at the beginning before we start. As you know, Alan and I are not therapists. Oh, I didn't tell you. I got my accreditation last week. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. There are very good people out there that are therapists, that are sex therapists, that have a lot of good information, a lot of good communication tools that really you should be learning in order to communicate about this. We've we've learned some good communication tools, which is why we're talking, but we are not experts on this. And we don't want to anyone to feel like we're taking a side, either on the church's side or on the ex-Mormon side. We are simply just presenting our experience. We're going to do our best to stop short of giving advice of this is how uh, we're not going to take a position, right? We're not going to take a position. On pornography or media, we're not going to take a position. We're going to say, this is what our experience has been. That's it. Right. And I think that it's important because a lot of people can identify with that experience and then they can say, okay, how did they work through this? Maybe this is something that would work for us. That is the only reason why we're presenting it in this way. So again, we just take it for what it is, which is our experience. Before we even get started, Katie, can I just say thank you for being willing to talk about this? What is it that we will be talking about? Well, it's sexual shaming and marriage. Title of the of the episode. Title of the episode. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And it's been a little bit of it's been a few episodes since we've had like a personal here's our experience type of episode. We've done a lot of interviews, which are, which are great. But I'm excited to get back to I'm excited to talk about me again. No, not quite that. But I'm excited that we're doing like a couples session together now. I am too, although I am super nervous about this. And I'll tell you why. We have talked about doing this episode, like Ellen mentioned, a couple of times. And it has been, it has been years, years since some of these like big things happened to us. And they are still so tender and close to the surface sometimes for me that I I get triggered sometimes when I when I hear about this because I have all of these emotions that come flooding back to me. And in a way, I have a little bit of shame myself for how I treated the situation. I still feel hurt by what happened. And 
I get mad too. I get mad that I felt like I didn't have the tools to help myself get to a better place during that time. It was just really dark and heavy. So you are all wondering what we're talking about. We have an agenda. We're going to go through it. And we're going to just start with talking about our ideas surrounding sex and intimacy and marriage growing up. Alan, what is what are the things that you saw? You were the youngest of six children. So yeah. I feel like maybe you were better prepared than I was. <laughs> well, I, I saw sexuality... <laughs> Up, up close and personal in my home, but not like I walked in on my brother and, or sister or, or anything like that. But I was the youngest of six. So I, you know, I was renting tuxes every few years to be parts of weddings. And, uh, and that topic was, wasn't, I don't think it was like normalized in my, in my home, but I saw my siblings getting getting married. Okay. Well, I'm going to stop you there. You've got to tell the story about <laughs> the camping trip because I feel like this is actually has been normalized for you. Yeah, this that's actually a good point. So my oldest brother who has been on this podcast, uh, Jason Mount, if you go back to the episodes to listen to it, we were on this uh, a camping trip, uh, Lake Nascimento for all you California friends. And he had recently been married. I, I was thinking it's probably like two or three weeks before he, he was married. He's my oldest brother, first one of the family married. And as we're at this camp out, I'm in the tent with him. It's my tent, but we're just kind of hanging out. He was sleeping in the camper with his wife. And the next day after the first night, he comes into the tent and we're kind of chatting. He's like, Hey, Alan, you know, I just want you to know that you can ask me any question you want. About he's always been such a good brother. He's been a great, he's yeah. always been a great brother. And in this case, he was being a big brother and a parent kind of at the same time. And I don't think he was consciously like making up for lack of conversation in the home on this topic or anything. He was just being a good big brother. And he asked me, if you have any questions about sex at all ever, you can always ask, do you have any right now? And my mind's racing. I was 12, maybe 13. Well, yeah. I mean, I was 12 when he got married and I'm thinking, okay. What do I ask? The only question that I could think to ask was, when was the last time you did it? Like, that, that's the only thing I could think. And he said, last night in the, in, the, in, in, the, the tent. in the tent. And I was like, oh, okay. And that was the end of the conversation. Okay. But that's, there's one example of at least the topic was being brought up. I remember coming home from school during high school um, with one of my friends particularly uh, and my parents being like on top of each other on the couch and they weren't like going crazy or anything, but my mom on top of my dad, full prone, you know, and they're just kind of arms around each other. And my friend going like, what is going on? And I remember thinking like, good for them. Good for them. Uh, that was, that was always something that, that was, that I was happy about. I remember my dad's six foot eight, my mom's five ten. So even though she's tall, he's tall and they would always, you know, stand on the step. She would stand on the, the step above him while he's on the ground level on the stairs in order to f meet the heights. I have that picture in my head a lot. I step on two steps. Up yes. And then, and all of our wedding pictures, I had to, to like stand with my legs <laughs> wide, wide apart just to lower my height, uh, to get, get, get my face in the frame. So, I mean, suffice, suffice it to say that your parents showed that they had a loving, physical, intimate life. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so... And I know we're going to switch over to you. Yeah. I mean, that's not to say... It was a very typical LDS home in in regards that that it was absolutely talked about in our home that sex is safe for marriage, that you have to be really careful before marriage with girlfriends, with boyfriends, and... And, you know, we had a rule that if you had a girl over now, surprisingly, my parents were fine with girls in the bedroom, but the rule was doors open, feet on the floor. You had to have your door open. You have, you had, you had to have your feet on the floor. You could not be on your bed with a girl. (laughs) And, uh, so that was, that was kind of the home that I was raised in. I think my parents were, were concerned and we'll get, get to some more specific examples, but they were concerned about the boys. And from a very early age, I showed a lot more interest in girls than my older brothers did when I was young. And we're talking, I was stealing my mom's, uh, inherited diamond ring from her grandmother to propose to a girl in fourth grade at school. I literally gave her the ring. Right. And I think it's cause you had seen your older brother propose to his his wife right. and that that happened right after. But uh, I, I How about your family, my family, it was so different. I grew up in a very LDS Orthodox home, but on top of that, as all of you know, this, I think this can span into so many different areas, not just religion, but cultural preferences. So my father is Tongan and in Tonga, you, it is not okay to show affection. You don't right. hold hands. You don't kiss in front of people. You don't hug. There is no intimate relationship that you sh- outwardly show. That is something that is private. And my mom's a pretty private person as well. And so I can probably tell you how many times on two hands, how, how, I, how many times I've seen my parents kiss hmm. ever. They... I think as they get older, they uh, are more loving. They'll hold hands or they'll hug. They're more public about their love, right? Maybe right. more public about it because it's been enough time. But I was never allowed to even talk about intimacy with within my family. In fact, I remember in high, in maybe it was junior high. Uh, that that song, I'm too sexy for, for my sh- la- for my la- shirt, <laughs> you know. And so uh, I remember listening it, listening to it with my friends and thinking it was so funny. And we would like sort of dance around. And one time, my dad heard it and he became irate. So the word sex, sexy, sexy is a bad word, very bad word, never able to say it, never able to talk about it. And you didn't have any older siblings. And I was the oldest of eight. Right. So I had no clue what was acceptable or what was not acceptable. I knew nothing. And I'm saying like, you guys, I knew nothing. And it was back in a day and age where we didn't we didn't get a a computer till I was like a junior in high school. I mean, it just wasn't wasn't a thing for me. So I think knowing those backgrounds um, will be important for the story that we tell because, in a way, as being the oldest child, I felt a lot of pressure to be. a a very good example to my siblings to be very pure. You know, we had all those young women's lessons, right? In our teenage years, we had those young women's and young men's lessons about 
being pure for your spouse. I remember writing in a journal all the things that I wanted in my husband and all the things I would do in order to make myself um, this perfect person for him. And you know what's funny? I never, ever felt that way. Do you think Looking, it's because was, young men don't focus on that and yeah, young women do? Yeah. And and that's, look, I'm not going to, I tend to not dogpile or jump on and criticize the church on this podcast. Uh, I do that in other arenas, but not on this podcast. Uh, but yeah, I do. Uh, but it's so it just focusing on the difference between my experience and in my youth and your experience. I was I still wanted to uh, be chaste and still wanted to be pure. And I'm using those words that were taught to me just the same that you did, but my motivations were probably different. It was something that I was supposed to do for you. You were much, it seems like you were much more forward thinking as well of I'm doing this for my husband. I never once thought, and maybe this is a fault of mine, could be a difference in the message. I never once thought I need to do this for my future wife. I never thought that, that to my recollection. And I think that's the messages we got in right. in Young Women is if you want to be worthy of a return missionary and you want to have this ultra perfect life where you're married in the temple and you have kids and your life is going to be amazing, this is what you do. This is how you get there. Do, do you that remember getting the like the, the chewing gum analogy or the cockroach in the ice cream analogy or anything <laughs> I, like that? I remember getting one. I, oh, I remember that there was like a clear glass of water and she would put like a little bit of red dye in it to signify what sin was and then how you could put some Clorox in when you repent, but there's still that murky pinkish water that you will never get rid of. Oh, but isn't that so counter to the whole idea of repentance? It absolutely is. And I think, guess what? We know better, we'll do better. And we won't make the same mistake with our kids. But this is the messages that I got. And I'm sure many people can relate to that message. Yeah. Alan, your teen years, did you feel like you had like normal teen years in dating, in relationships? I know you've had a number (laughs) of girlfriends. Mm, The ladies. Well, when I finally figured out that uh, girls that were younger than me were more likely to say yes than girls that were my age, <laughs> I started having more girlfriends. <laughs> Which is ironic because I know because I married I married someone a year older. <laughs> no, I, I I I remember kind of sitting down either in my senior year or soon thereafter of high school and like thinking through the timeline of my romantic relationships. And there was, I mean, my journals. I kept a journal all throughout high school and. I could go to my journal and every day it was about a girl, maybe a day or two here was no girl was mentioned and it was about volleyball, but every single day there was some girl mentioned. And as soon as one girl stopped, whether that was girlfriend broke up with me or, or whatever it would be, uh, another girl is the, right there. Like I, I was crazy about girls. So I either had a girlfriend or I had a romantic interest at all times. And the interesting thing, I mean, this is more of a side note that is probably way off topic, but I was the heteroist person that I knew, but I was into theater. I was in, I was the mascot my senior year in high school, uh, which I wore a blue unitard and painted my face blue. Like it was this. So you were also the student body president. 
I did a lot. You did a lot. I did a lot of extracurriculars, oh but some gosh. of them were not traditional manly things. But I also played three sports, oh and so gosh. it like. There were my nickname, if I may be so bold, and I don't know if this needs to, I don't think it needs a trigger warning or anything, but my nickname when I played basketball was Big Gay Al because of the South Park character, oh, which had right. just started and gotten uh, popular. And then the coach didn't, didn't like that, but he allowed the other kids to call me BGA for short. <laughs> so that was my nickname, but I was, I was so girl crazy, like so girl crazy. So you asked the question, like, how normal? Of a childhood, do you think, or teenage years, did I think I had? Sorry, what was your question? Yeah, I mean, just that, just to talk about your teenage years. And I mean, I had the same experience. I was very boy crazy. I had a boy on every page. I didn't have my... How old were you when you had your first kiss? Yeah, I didn't have my first kiss until I was, I think I was 17. Maybe I was 16. But the thing is that it was actually really cute that it was his first kiss and it was my first kiss. Oh, it was probably a really bad kiss. He was 17 and I was 16. (laughs) I think that's what it was. And it was a terrible kiss. It was terrible. And it got better after that. But but I, I dated guys that were super Peter Priested, if Mm. I can put the label on it. Sure. I did. They were super respectful. I've ne- I never had problems with like boys trying to like touch me in places that I didn't want to be touched and I you you can never really tell a character of a guy until you re- you date someone, right? But I got I for me I got lucky that I dated like really great guys. Yeah. And I only had a couple of boyfriends really before I went on my mission. And I remember I was dating someone right before I made the decision to go and it was getting a little serious and I and I just told him I really want to go on a mission and he broke it off right then and there and then went on my mission. Right. Alan, you got your mission call and it was delayed. It was. Do you want to without getting into too many specifics, do you want to talk about that? Sure, cuz I think that that goes to your previous question as well that, you know, with a number of my girlfriends, I, I honestly can look you in the face, look my mom in the face. I don't need to look the bishop in the face, but I could. And, and say, I, with every girlfriend, wanted to be a good Mormon boy and do what I was told. But they weren't Mormon girls. No, that's the thing. So I didn't grow up in Utah. I grew up in California. There were only a, a handful of Mormon girls. And I crushed on a few of them. It just never, I was never serious with any LDS girl in high school. And and so when, when I was dating girls, uh, a few of them were were had the same values as I did. Um, and that was, that was great. Uh, even with those girls, there were things that happened that are not in the first strength of youth pamphlet or the the first strength of youth pamphlet advises against. Uh, But then there's other girls that, you know, they grew up in a non-religious home. They wanted to be careful with their bodies, but we were teenagers and, you know, (laughs) things happen. You feel guilty afterwards. You, I, I had, I had a two girlfriends that I broke up with because things went too far and I, and I felt terrible about it. And did you talk to the Bishop after this happened or did you talk to either of your parents about it? I don't remember talking to my parents about it. I remember my parents warning me about my serious girlfriends and encouraging me to be in more group settings, which I still think is wise advice for a teenager. Right. Um, we have teenagers. We're we, doing this. Yeah, thing. we do. We do. And our oldest has a serious interest right now mm-hmm. and she's interested in him too. So I did talk to my Bishop 
uh, not day after anything happened, but each single girl that it happened with, which literally is on one hand. It's not like I was a crazy player or anything, but and every girl that something happened with, I you was did in break, a serious you relationship did break with. Up with each one of them. You were never broken up with. I wasn't. Um, <laughs> so don't, I wasn't. Half don't a, tell me you're not a player, right? But of the four, <laughs> of the four or five, we're talking four or five over the course of of four and a half, five years. Anyway, okay. so um, but about half of them I broke up with because I felt bad about what was going on physically. And and sexually, and I and I didn't want to keep going. Especially the closer you get to graduation, you're like, my mission's coming up. <laughs> I got to be careful here. So that was um, that was interesting. So anyway, yes, talk to my bishop. I remember the first time I talked to him, it was at youth conference. And it, for those that went to youth conference, uh, there's this the last day, right? You've done service projects, you've done these classes, but then the last day, there's this huge everyone included. There were 700 kids there, uh, testimony meeting. And I went up and I, after this intense spiritual experience at youth conference, and now I'm, I'm almost 17 at this point, I'm 16 and a half or so. And after this intense weekend of spiritual experiences right there, I start blubbering and crying and, and wiping snot off of my nose and say, Bishop, I need to talk to you tomorrow everyone bursts out laughing like, oh my gosh, this kid is, is admitting to things. Oh and I didn't get what? into why. You be extroverted and the just say whatever you want to say yeah. in front of other people. That's right. Don't believe it. Yeah, that's right. Microphones brought out the, the transparentist of me <laughs> from an early age. And that was the first time, right? That was the first time that I ever talked about it. And there tell you. me, so, okay, let's go to your mission call because okay. you get the mission call Yep. So I'm at UCLA. I get my mission call um, and I drive home to Santa Barbara. I actually bring uh, a girl from the dorms. Uh, she was LDS. We never did anything inappropriate, by the way. We did kiss a few times. But anyway, we she drove home with me and she was sitting next to me on the couch when I opened my mission call. August 29th, 2001 is your report date. Barcelona, Spain. Like, Woo! Barcelona, Spain. To go home, and one night I was reading in uh, all, all of. I was in the dorms as as a freshman, and I didn't like to go out and party. I went out probably three times with with my teammates. There were eight other freshmen on the team. I would go out with them every few months for whatever reason, but I never drank and didn't do what they were doing. So they would go out, and I would just hang out in the in my dorm room, play a video game and go to bed. So one night I was sitting there and I just didn't feel right about something. And I opened up the doctrine and covenants and read for like three hours. And then by the end of that session, I thought, gosh, I, I don't think I was honest with my Bishop about some of the things that have happened over the past year. And so I called him up, made an appointment. The next day I was in his office. I told him and they, and he said, I could see on his face, like, this is bad. Like this isn't good. So he called the stake president. I had to meet with the stake president. The stake president was mad at me. Like you had an opportunity to tell the truth and you didn't. And now I've got all the, I got this guilt weighing on me and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm terrible, but I've got to do it the right way. I'm not going to go on my mission the wrong way. I'm going to be a great missionary. Which I think is really hard. I think it's much easier just to lie about it and go. Right. And and now I'm not saying that you should have lied at all. That's all I'm saying. But big kudos to you. I think that says a lot about your integrity and who you are. 
the fact that you would go back and talk to them because you didn't want that on your conscience right. going out. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I honestly think that there's a lot of parallels here with how I've left the church, where I've been open and honest and not withholding to a fault, maybe, yep. with our leadership here, where it's, it's, there is a cost to being open and honest. I can't be there for my kids when they want me to be in the font or ordinations when other people in the ward that I know feel the same way about the church that I do. Uh, they're just not open and honest about it. They get to participate. Now, I don't want to participate, but I want to support my kids. And so I will. So anyway, there are some parallels here. Well, uh, trying to cut the, the story down a little bit, you know, he, the stake president says, I have to talk to the mission department about this. The next time I met with him, and I think it's important, this isn't me trying to throw the church or leaders under the bus. Like, I'm trying to paint this picture of the pressure and guilt and shame that I was put through and what that can lead to. Uh, when I went back in with my stake president, he said, I, you know, I, I discussed you personally with President Ballard. And I'm thinking like, oh my God. Gosh. What does that mean? Like he had a personal conversation with him? That's what he told me. That he had a personal conversation with President it's Ballard. It's so hard for me to believe that. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not but that's going what to he said. Judge now, his... this was right as they were quote raising the bar. Mm. I literally like this was the message. The bar is being raised for missionaries. There are stricter standards for missionaries. Well, I I tell he tells me this and he's like, "Look, I talked to President Ballard. He ultimately said it's up to me, but he did want you to know something. And like this was what the only thing I was told President Ballard said about me is he said, what you did was worse than vaginal intercourse because that has procreational value, but what you did does not. So what you did is purely for pleasure. And that's why this is so serious. And I left the office going again, two sides of the coin. One I'm taking care of this. This is what I'm supposed to do. And the other, I am, I'm awful. Like I, I have really messed up if an apostle is saying this and I don't know if he actually had the conversation with him. I take him at his word that he did. So that's what I was, that's what I was going family? to. How do you tell your parents about that? So, and how do you tell everyone around you? <laughs> yeah, that was tough. So my, the, 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 the interesting thing is that when my bishop called me in to say, I have, we have, cause the, the stake president didn't give me the verdict at that point. He just said, I'm going to be talking with your Bishop. My Bishop was, was great. I really, really liked him. I'm still friends with him on Facebook. He's awesome. So he, he calls me in, uh, the girl that I went and opened the mission call with, she drove me over to his office and waited in the car. And I walked in and, and he told me you, uh, based on the timeline, you cannot go, you can't report to the MTC, you're gonna have to resubmit your papers in six months. That'll be a year from the previous most recent transgression. And you, you have to, you know, resubmit. I went, okay. So I go. And in that moment, I actually felt a huge relief. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, this is the right thing. I was all in on, this is what God wants. So I'm going to follow this and amazing. Now I know the will of the Lord and I can just do it go into the car. I have a big smile on my face. And this girl in the car, she's like, you can go. And I went, no, I can't. I have to wait. I have to resubmit. She's like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, it's okay. I'm at peace with it. I call my brother. 
and ask him, he's also at UCLA, ask him, can you drive me home to Santa Barbara? Uh, and I told him why. And he's like, okay. So he drives me home. I sit down. Oh boy. I remember this conversation. I sit down with my parents and then the not fun stuff happened. So I tell my parents, look, I just met with my Bishop and uh, I have to, I'm delayed. My mom, (gasps) you know, starts crying and mom, I know you listen to the podcast. I do not blame you. <laughs> I think your reaction was absolutely warranted. Absolutely. You were devastated. That's and, mom. Yes. And you stood up, walked into the kitchen, and just started cleaning, right? This is what I do when I get stressed, this too. This is what I do, too. I, I pace, I, I clean. Yep. And my dad um, could have been worse, but he laid into me a bit. I told you, was it? was it this girl? And he said her name. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I warned you about her. I told you. I told, and I'm like, dad and, and mom, my mom stood up for me. that's a pretty accurate description of what Alan's (laughs) dad sounded like. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, my mom actually said, Jim, Jim, it doesn't matter now. And she, she stood up for me, not like excusing my behavior, but she was like, Jim, it, that's not going to do any good. So he stands up and he walks away. My mom's in the, in the kitchen and I can just see her doing the dishes and crying and she's in shell shock. And I'm like, Oh boy, this is hard. Well, my Bishop had, had told me that part of the repentance. Okay, wait. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I want to, I want to go back. Do you, did that have a bigger impact? Did her response have a bigger impact on you than your dad? Yes, it did. I just want to, I it's just want to point I'm not that mad. Out. I'm disappointed. You don't I, want your parents to be disappointed in you. No yelling. No. I mean, your dad was upset and yelling and, What's yeah. far more effective? I love. It is far more effective. Yeah, I love my dad. We love them both, but I want to point that out here because this is also a reminder for us as parents. It is far more effective to feel disappointment and sad, right, than it is to scream at a child. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's what you felt in that moment. Yeah. So anyway. now I know we're getting very detailed into this. So, but. This is important too. I was told by my bishop, you have to go to each of those two girls, women at this point, and apologize to them. Now, these are not LDS girls and women. I should, sorry, I'll say women. These are not LDS women. So the first woman I went to, to apologize, I actually went to her before my my parents, just based on geography. So I went and told her, I'm like, I just want to say, you know, I feel like I disrespected you. I feel like what we did, um, I shouldn't have participated in that. And I'm sorry for any disrespect that, that I placed on you. She teared up and said, that is the sweetest thing I've ever heard anyone say to me. And she gave me a hug and said, you have nothing to apologize for, but you thank you. Like that was so sweet. End of story. I don't even know if I ever saw her again, by the way. And then I go, I go home to Santa Barbara, tell my parents, then I I'm remembering my bishop told me to tell this girl. So I drive to her house and I talk to her and I say the same thing. And she blew up at me and said, what I'm hearing is that you regret our relationship. You regret everything about me. And I feel worse now than I did before. And how dare you apologize for, I mean, she basically just said we were two lovebirds doing what we were feeling in the moment and there's nothing to be sorry for. And it's, it's appalling that you're apologizing for this. She was really, really taken aback and that hit me hard. And it was like, Oh, this is tough. I even went to my best friend's house and warned him and said, don't put yourself in this situation. 
this is going to be, it's really hard. I wonder yeah. if he remembers that. <laughs> anyway. I don't know. So there's all the mission stuff. So then I go into the MTC. I resubmit my papers. And you get And a long story short, I get place. the same mission. My bishop did tell me they send elders like you to the States. They don't send elders like you foreign. But they did. They just resubmitted or reclaimed my call or whatever. And so then I went into the MTC May 8th, 2002, which was coincidentally the day that we met. That's right. So that was when I got my call was to leave on May 8th as well. And I remember meeting Alan and just in the first three weeks of the MTC, we all kind of knew each other's story. And it we had unfolded. a small group. We were seven, seven, seven people, three sisters, four elders. Right. And we were actually a super loving, tight knit group. Yeah. I mean, we really looked out for each other. And so I learned just like in the first couple weeks of being there that Alan had had a mission call, was delayed, and had left six months later. And honestly, I didn't really know what that meant. Because again, I never had any experience with this, never had an older sibling. I knew that there could be a number of things, a number of reasons why he left later. I actually thought it was due to the fact that he played volleyball at UCLA and that like he was delayed because he was playing an extra semester. I didn't really understand what that meant. I think as far as I went to explain it to the district was was there were some things I had to take care of. Right. And that could be taken many different ways. It can be. And I think 90% of the people would probably interpret that <laughs> Accurately. So I am in the 10% of the people that I didn't, I didn't understand what that was. And so let's, we'll fast forward. Alan gets home from his mission. I get home from my mission. Alan gets home from his mission. Uh, we start talking on the phone like every night together. We're emailing each other at first and then we're talking on the phone. And then it becomes real. We decide we see each other. For a weekend at a time, I go to his house in California, he comes to Utah, and we do this sort of back and forth thing through most of the summer. And it was it was pretty like right off the bat we knew we were getting married. Yeah, and we had very, been very we had been friends for two full years before that. And we didn't know if like the physical side of it was going to click. And Did then it? as soon as we got together, as soon as we had our first date, we realized, oh, yep, this is going to happen. Yeah. Isn't that how you felt? Yeah, that is how I felt. Yep. And so... How did our engagement go as far as physical? I mean, it, it, was, it was great. Yeah, it was totally fine. Again, you, you know where my standards lied. And um, I had this sort of idea as to what our marriage was going to be like. So I remember one night we were talking on the phone. And I got curious because, you know, here I am close to being married and I've never done anything. I've never had any type of intimate relationship with anyone. And I remember asking Alan, I said, okay, just tell me, I know you were delayed. And I think by now we had talked about it and I was clued in. And I said, just tell me, like, have you had sex with anyone? Are you a virgin? Are you a virgin? That was the question. Are you a virgin? And he said, yes. And I said, great, I have no other questions. I'm, I'm fine, let's get married. So we get married, and then 
It was like six months later, we decide to take a road trip to Vegas and we're going to go see one of my companions and stay at her house and, or her parents' house anyway. And I remember the strawberry daiquiris that she made us. I know. It, virgin, it was, of course. Virgin. Yeah. I, it was, it was such a fun, fun weekend. I mean, it was like, we were on a high and our first year of marriage basically was just such a good, we had a good first year, of marriage. good first year. We had so much fun together. But 30 minutes into a six hour drive back, we're driving back. That's right. And I decide, hey, <laughs> I'm mature enough. We have been married for a good solid six months. We can talk about this subject now. So I ask Alan, I want you to tell me, why did you get delayed? Like, give me some of the details and background into it. Right. Which is just such a mousetrap for Alan. Especially when you're stuck. You're in the car. You can't do anything for five and a half more hours. You're in the car. And I didn't have a lot of experience with you talking about difficult topics. We didn't have... I would say that we were so naive. Right. So naive in in how we approached difficult subjects at this time. We're right. just newly married. So, but you know, we'd been friends for a long time and I thought, oh, we could talk about it. No problem. I remember the response that I had at first was guarded and it was, look, I, I'm, I will give you the details if you want the details. Like I, I'll tell you, you're my wife. I love you. I'll tell you. And you wanted it. And I wanted it. I thought I wanted it. I thought I did. Right. So Ellen gives the details of what happened. And and I was detailed. And I mean, was I was detailed. very detailed. And again, you know, I started with, it was girls. It was girl stuff. And then you asked, you know, what did you do? And then I went into the details. Right. I don't know what you thought, like, would warrant that type of delay, but it wasn't what I told you. It is not what you told me. I guess I, in that moment, I felt tricked. I felt like... You had tricked me into marrying you. I felt like you didn't tell me the truth to begin with. And so I, I thought that you were one way. And now I'm seeing this new light of things that happened. And it's making me literally physically ill. And I began crying. And I don't stop crying all the way home. Right. And Do you remember any of the conversation, any of my response to your reaction? Oh, yeah. I mean, you were very consolatory. You tried to help me understand. You apologized. You later, you know, when it just kept going on and on, you reminded me, I've repented of this. I don't know if I'm creating false memories. And it, maybe the timeline isn't terribly important. But I I remember s- saying this in the car. Like, in the car, I, I Again, if it happened before, after, it doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, I did. I, I said, Katie, this isn't, this isn't fair. Like, that's what repentance is for. This is gone. I'm feeling the same guilt that I did during the repentance process. And that's not cool. Yeah, I think this was, it though, in like the fifth and sixth hour of driving. And I've cried all the way. And I'm giving him the silent treatment. And I don't want to talk to him because I'm so upset. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, what in the world have I gotten myself into? I have saved myself for marriage. I have been, okay, again, I am putting myself on a pedestal because that is what I was told to do. Mm-hmm. I was told that if I did everything perfectly, I could be on that pedestal and my husband would match me 
on that pedestal. So I'm looking at it, I'm seeing it, and now I'm just mad, right? I'm, I'm shocked, I'm sad, I'm mad because I am so much better than Alan. And I'm not kidding. This is my this was my mentality is why how do I deserve this? I do not deserve this. And then it's kind of it it kind of for a couple weeks that's the the what that was the mood. And then I had a come to Jesus moment and I realized look what Alan is saying is right. Alan was very again shame. He was shamed. I shamed him. And he was very upset. He was, I remember like we got home and he just sat on the bed and cried because this is something that he's over. He doesn't need to feel shame about it anymore. And I mean, you could argue you never needed to feel shame about it in the first place. But I remember like seeing him so distraught that he had hurt me in this way. And then I realized what I was doing and I apologized and we just moved on. Right. And and that was kind of like a all right, tie that up with a bow. We're done with that. Moving on. We're not going to talk about it anymore. So things were really good in our marriage for the first couple years after that incident. I would call it again such a tender thing to to revisit. We never revisited it. Right. So then a couple years into our marriage, I was on the computer and I discovered that there had been porn sites visited and i knew i still claim it was our (laughs) one-year-old i i knew exactly what it was i believe i was pregnant with our second at the time and i immediately said to alan are you looking at porn and he at first denied it and then i showed him what i had found on the computer And literally, I was not looking for it. I had gone to the search bar to look for a product I had bought that I needed to go back and buy. And that's where I found the history of everything that that had been hit, you know, all the websites that had been gone to. And he then confessed. And I went to my room and shut the door and cried in my room for a long time. And Alan immediately knew that he shouldn't have done that, right? And what did oh, you do? I immediately felt terrible. Um, and, I mean, it reminds me of that Rihanna, at the moment, probably the Rihanna song, where it's like, you're only sorry because you got caught or whatever. Yep. But I, I immediately called the bishop, like, right away, like, oh, boy, I got to take care of this. And, and you uh, said, can, can I meet with you tonight? Right. It was like, go. And I'm kind of a get-it-done-now person like many men are, but I called, I don't remember, I don't remember my initial conversations with that bishop. I remember my conversations with the next bishop. I remember that he was like a pretty loving guy. He did a lot of counseling with you and talked to you about the situation and what happened and said, okay, well, you know, here's how you can safeguard yourself. And this, this is what you can do in the future. And if you have a slip up, come talk to me. Right. So this was a seasoned bishop. He was he was a grandpa. He obviously had dealt with this with a lot of guys. I don't know where in the ward maybe. But this was a, a topic that I think he knew a lot about. And I didn't we didn't know that until we got a new bishop. Right. So then 
I find out that it's happening again. And I, again, just kind of go into this fight or flight mode and I, and I flee. I, I leave. I found out that this happened and I just had felt so alone. I didn't tell a single person ever. And I was really, really sad. And so I remember getting in my car and I left and I drove somewhere. I was just driving around town and my, I just was, I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand like why I wasn't providing you with what you needed and why like you turned to that instead of me. And I remember I was gone and I was gone for a long time. And and sorry, (laughs) is, I feel like a lot of times pornography use is misunderstood where it's, if you're looking at it, uh, that means that your wife or your husband isn't giving you what you need when that's not always the, the reason why people view pornography. I just want to, I just want to call that out. I'm hearing, I'm hearing listeners minds work as they hear this. And, and, and so like, again, this is almost venturing into the the topic of is pornography okay to look at? And we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. Excuse me. We're not going to go there. Uh, That's anyway, that's just something that I wanted to call out. Right. But this is my experience. This is what's going through my mind. So I'm, I don't want to be apologetic about that because that's exactly what I thought. And you took the router. Like you, I remember you, like the internet was gone. Oh, well you, I, you asked me, you said, I will do anything. What what do you want me to do? Mm-hmm. You can take the power strip at night so I can't even get on the computer because I was working nights at the hospital and I would work graveyard shifts. And yeah, yeah, and, I remember and, that. And Alan offered like I'll I'll do whatever you need me to do. But I I want to talk though. I went I left the house and I was just so upset. And I was pretty close to having our second and I felt like worried that all of this stress would cause me to go into preterm labor or I would, I would be really, really sick. There was a lot of health issues I was concerned about because I was under so much stress. And, uh, I remember I left and Alan, that's when he, I think you thought that I went to my parents' house and you called my parents to tell them what was going on. Whoops. <laughs> and that was the wrong thing to do because I hadn't told anyone. And, um, I, anyway, it just was not a, it wasn't a good thing in our marriage to do. Right. It wasn't a positive move because yeah. that's not who I went to. Can I ask a delicate question? Please. So why did you like continue to use pornography at the beginning of our marriage? I honestly couldn't, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. And the interesting thing is that like, this is not an excuse, but I think that there is this perception similar to alcohol in, in our belief system or former belief system in my case, that any use is addiction. Um, this was not something that I was uncontrollably doing every single day, three times a day. It was ruining my career because I was wasting time doing this. I was doing it at school. I was doing it in the restroom stalls. This was not that. This was this was probably quantitatively a couple of times a month. And go ahead. You're, you don't like what I'm talking about right now. No, it's not that I don't like it. But could 
Would you agree that it escalated? Yes. Yeah, I can agree with that. And it doesn't, it's not, we're not talking about everyone else's experience. We're talking about our experience. So for you, it escalates. It it did escalate. So it did get, it did escalate. That's fair to say. And why in the moment, like Alan back then, I couldn't really explain to you why I, I don't feel like I was dissatisfied with our relationship as far as like our physical or sexual relationship. And today without getting into getting too burdensome with this explanation, it's like, excuse me, there's, there's biological explanations for why men are look at multiple sexual partners and like the biology of that works. And again, if you don't want to go down that path, um, again, this isn't me making excuses for my past decisions. It's, it's uh, biologically men can fertilize hundreds of women, but women can only be fertilized once. And biologically, like there's that sex drive and that need in quotations need that there are unhealthy ways of fulfilling it. And I was pursuing ways that were damaging to our relationship. And I don't like that fact. I don't like that fact. So that's, that's me more trying to explain like, this is not, and very oftentimes pornography use is not the, a symptom of a bad relationship with your partner. And I don't, I feel like that explanation fits our experience. I was not dissatisfied with our relationship. I feel like you're an impulsive person. Yeah. And so I feel like a lot of times you just act on impulse. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it's, it's still, again, guys, this isn't something that we, we've, we haven't talked about, about this about much this because at all. Right. So these are difficult <laughs> questions that we're working through in front of all of our audience. <laughs> Appreciate you doing, doing that. Everyone. I, I don't really, I, okay. Biological or not. I think that I just feel unfulfilled by that response. Mm-hmm. I so. don't know. I don't know how else to say it. Cause when I look back at it now, I, what's the, what's that middle ground of where, where's the explanation? If it's not a shame or if it's not something to be feel guilty or shamed about, but you can also recognize that it can negatively impact a relationship. Like, and for some people, it escalates. And I think we recognize that for you, it was escalating. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that you have to... It's just like if you... I mean, if you you escalate in alcohol use, it's something you should probably stop doing. I think a lot of the reason why escalations um, can happen as well is due to the secretive nature of the initial thing that's going on. Okay, so if is it safe to say that anything done in secret cannot survive or thrive in your marriage. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about that with a lot of other topics of like, be open, don't make behavior changes without talking to your spouse about it. Even if it ends up being, I know that you don't want me to do this. I know that this is going to be difficult for you, but I am choosing to do it. Leaning into the fact that we 
I, I trust that we can get through this and I'm sorry, it's going to be difficult. That's not the ideal situation, but that's better than being secret. The and, ideal I mean, situation is actually negotiating it and talking about it. That that would be under the lessons learned, right, for us. Mm-hmm. But in the in the moment, in the time, we didn't have those tools. We didn't even have that thought process. Right. It was all had, or nothing. It was, it was get rid of nothing. it, all or nothing. That's it. And But for you in particular, it needed to be just gotten rid of because it was escalating. Right. So, so for you, I mean, we both agree that that was kind of the course of action for us. So there were slip-ups along the way. We got a new bishop. And Alan was serving in the young men's presidency and he had a slip up and it was a brand new Bishop he was dealing with. And this Bishop was literally in his early thirties and was brand spanking new. So do you Mm -hmm. want to talk about what happened when you went and talked to the Bishop? Yeah. I mean, not to get too detailed here, but it was, uh, he took it very seriously. Um, immediately asked right there on the spot. I need your temple recommend. This was on a Sunday morning, and we had church in just a couple hours. Right. So temple recommends given, and at the at the time I was the first counselor in the young men's presidency, and I was released. Was it that day or the next week? That day. So just a few hours later, I was released. Extremely and he harsh. Said, uh, yeah, and and so for me, it was like you know, further driving you into the ground. And what are you going to do in that? Like, what's going to happen in that situation? It it was tough. Do you remember you came home and you told me the bishop took my recommend away and he's releasing me today. And we both just sat on the bed and cried. Right. Because I felt really upset that a bishop would do that to him, especially with a bishop beforehand, just being very like working with us. But because he was so extremely harsh, in in one what? sense of the way, in one in one way, I kind of felt like, well, you brought this on yeah, yourself. You get, yeah, you're getting what you you're getting deserve. what you deserve. And in another way, I thought, well, this isn't fair. I didn't know you felt that in the moment. Like th- this is new to me in this moment. That back then you felt like this isn't fair. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely felt this isn't fair, and yeah, it I had wasn't. No idea. He, so the bishop didn't tell a single soul. And then what happens, we didn't go to church because we were both in such a bad state. And then he gets released and the, and the young man's present comes over to Alan and says, what happened? You didn't tell me that you need, you wanted to be released. It was a pretty new, it was like six or seven months into the calling. It wasn't very long into the calling. Do you, I don't remember. I remember him, him coming over. I just yeah. don't remember what I told him. You didn't tell him what happened. And... It was, it was devastating. You guys, it was, it was so, oh, I just look back and I think, oh, that it was just, okay. Not only was I like shaming Alan, now the bishop is shaming him. Now other people in the ward know that he got released and now that's shameful. Oh, and he can't take the sacrament. I mean, it was, that's very public. It was so awful. That experience was horrible. This and Katie, so just so everyone knows, Katie's got the agenda on her phone and I'm, she's kind of leading the conversation, but this moment and just pull me back if, if I shouldn't go here yet, but like this moment in how things went in this ward, uh, really dictates how the next few years go. Yeah. Because even though the, like the sin quote unquote stopped, uh, I was, Scarlet A in that on my chest in that ward 
And that was a new bishop. We were in the ward for a number of years after that, four years, I think, after that. Mm -hmm. But same bishop. So no way am I getting called or trusted to be put into any kind of situation like that. So I wasn't. But I get called to all the leadership Katie got called. So then it was like, okay, well, (laughs) as far as like my service in the church, I guess I'm just going to have to wait to until there's a bishop that doesn't know about this or we move and we ended up moving and we moved and, but then we were in temporarily living with your parents. So that I wasn't going to get like an quote, important calling uh, end quote and in we your parents ward less than a year. because everyone knew we were only there for less than a year. Right. And, but sorry, sorry. Just oh, let me ahead, give sorry. one last thing. So then when we moved up to Salt Lake County, I mean, this is why it ties into my overall faith transition story is when we moved up to Salt Lake County, I looked at Katie and I said, we get to decide who we are going into this ward. They, nobody knows us here. Nobody knows the baggage. I didn't directly relate this pornography stuff, but nobody knows what the last few years have looked like for us. We can be whoever we want. And who did we decide to be? We're going to be the people that say yes. We're going to be the people that do everything that is asked of us. And like, Less than a week into the ward, our family was performing at the talent show. I remember that very clearly. And we were we talked the first Sunday, and it was just like, we are gung-ho. And it, like three weeks into it, I got called as Zildjian president. And it's all because we hit the ground so hard and running so fast. And then I don't need to tell the whole faith, faith crisis story, no. but like it happened in that ward is where it started. I want to just um, say... To any Thanks for letting me go through. Yeah, that. no, I I agree because it does it does go, it does everything ties in together, right? You you see it as just like one experience that is tied by a rope to the next one, right? Because no better, do better, but also you're going to change the way you do things with everything that comes after that, right? Right, and I I want to talk a little bit about like my feelings surrounding the pornography, because I think this is a super common topic. It's one that is so shame filled, so fear based. Uh, There are entire programs, therapy programs out there um, designed for LDS couples to get through this. Yeah. We've heard some horror stories about from listeners about some of this. But again, focusing on our own story, I guess something that I've, I felt, I felt so many things, an array of things. And we go back to that first encounter I have with Alan and he tells me what he's done with, you know, this, these girls. And, and I go back to that place in my, in, in my mental state. And I think like, I am too good for you again. Here it is me trying to pick up the pieces of our marriage and trying to put it back together. I'm being the honest one, you know, so here I am again, putting myself on the pedestal in this marriage. I remember that I went to a women's conference with my family, with my sisters and my mom. And I remember that they all decided that they wanted to go to one class. And I said, oh, I'm going to go to the bookstore and pick some, pick up some few a few things and then I'll meet you. But what I was really doing is I was going into a class that talked about spouses that are addicted to pornography. And it that's how, that is how shame, like shameful I felt about it. I couldn't even tell the people I was with, like, hey, I need support. Will you come with me to this class? No, I didn't want anyone to know. So I sat in this room full of 
I mean, hundreds, it was packed, hundreds and hundreds of women who aren't saying anything to anyone because it is so tender and so deeply personal to everybody there. And they, I listened to this whole talk about pornography use and, you know, what to do when your spouses are into it and all this. And then after I meet my my mom and my sisters and everything is so great. And oh, yep, where I had like cried through the entire thing. And so I think that when we talk about secrecy does not cannot thrive or survive in a relationship, that also means with your with your friends and family. Like, I get that, you know, I was so personal and I felt so, so much shame and fear about it, but it would have just been so much easier to say to them, Hey, this is something that's really hard for me and really hard in my marriage. And I need support in this and I didn't get it. So again, I went through it just carrying it all myself. And being conscious of one other thing that we've talked about on the podcast a lot is with faith transitions. Like, do you go to your parents without talking to me about it? Uh, you need the support that you need. Is it your story to tell? Well, at this point, you had already, he, Alan had already told my parents, so it wasn't like it was true. And, new. And, and I, I didn't. And tell I also, it. I also, one thing that I that I did the conversation. I just want to make sure everyone understands that we had had the conversation. We had of yes. Katie. If you need to talk to anybody about this, feel free. Like, go ahead and talk to people about this. I had given permission, quote unquote for her to, to talk about it if she needed to. But even with that being being given and granted and, and supported, you, it was still too shameful to, to bring up with, with people. Yeah. And I think that a lot of, <laughs> I think a lot, you can say this about so many different things, but it, yeah, in this particular instance, it was very hard. And, you know, I, one of the reasons why I still have a strong belief in, God and Jesus Christ is because I constantly felt prompted to do things or say things that I wouldn't get before. There are times, and Alan can tell you about this, that I just felt like something was wrong. Like I felt like this sort of like dark something had something was up, and I just wrestled with it. I would wrestle with it for a couple days, and I would be kind of upset. And then Alan would say, "Okay." Like, just so you know, I had another slip up and I had like felt it internally. I had felt like there was something there. And so again, this is one of the reasons why I have sort of stayed where I'm at because of, you know, these experiences, especially in our marriage, where I felt like I was prompted or I felt something deep and down inside that I knew. And then, you know, when it came to light, it was like a relief that I had found out but this has been what 12 years yeah has it been 12 years since this happened 13 years ago yeah yeah since this has happened and it wasn't until we got the hot tub <laughs> that one night so within the last 12 months within the, the last 8 months within the last i think it was last year in the fall sometime i finally asked alan i have a super sensitive question and i have to know why and i asked him about all of this And we have literally not talked about it since then, because as you know, painful things, usually you don't want to revisit. Right. And I feel like we've learned enough communication tools to be able to talk about it now, but, um, you know, it's the still, it's been so many years and the feelings are still 
there and raw and I can remember them and you can remember them, both the shameful, fearful things. I think that there are a lot of lessons that we've learned you know, over that amount of time. Uh, almost immediately, you know, after a couple of years of going through this, Alan stopped any pornography use. Mm-hmm. And I would constantly check, be checking things for a few years after. And then it got to the point where I just said, well, I mean, it, he, we had to rebuild the trust. So Alan, let's talk about lessons learned and some of the repair, maybe the repair attempts that were made in order to rebuild the trust. Well, I mean, one of those long-term repair attempts is just showing through behavior and words and actions I guess actions is behavior uh, that that you're being truthful, that you're being honest, uh, and that included, um, and this is pre faith crisis stuff. That included you know, telling you what I was doing. Of hey, I watch Game of Thrones, and that was not an easy conversation. I mean, at first you maybe don't know what's in Game of Thrones, and well, you no, don't want to watch it. But then you find out, and you're like, wait a second. And then we have to have this conversation of okay, well. Why am I watching it? Am I watching it for that? And anyway, we don't need to get into that. But there's there's a, a level of of honesty that helps gain that trust, and that's I feel like that's a, a repair attempt uh, as well. Um, do you have any repair attempts? In well, mind? I feel like because so much of of what happened was in secrecy mm-hmm. that you and I both know how badly it turns out, how badly I react, how badly you feel. I think that it's not worth it. And, and I, I mean, I think that after a time, we've just realized it's not worth it to just keep it a secret because it's going to hurt us both in the end. And, but isn't that, can't that so easily go the other way? Totally. Where if, because of the bad reaction, because of how it is that the behavior keeps going, that's why it's secret, but it becomes so secretive. Right. So and why then, did it go the di- other be, way with us? But, and then be, I think that you become entrenched in that secret, right? I mean, guys, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many couples we've talked to where one spouse had been drinking for two years before their spouse even found out that that requires a huge repair attempt, huge, but why did they keep it secret? Because they knew how big of a deal it would be if they were open and honest about it. So both sides sides need to, to work on, look, you can trust that I'm not going to, change behaviors that are really going to hurt you. And I need to be able to trust that when I am open and honest with you, that you, you take that gift of open and honesty and reciprocate it with, with as calm as possible reactions, not saying, Oh, it's okay. You can do what you want. Like that. That's not what we mean by a good reaction. A good reaction is thank you for telling me. Or what does a good reaction look like? No, a good reaction, I think you should be able to feel whatever emotion you're feeling, but you don't lash out at that partner. Mm-hmm. If you're sad and you start crying, you say, I'm so sad about this. This is really hard for me. You don't say, you have made me upset. You are the one that's causing me pain. This is what I did in the beginning of my marriage, guys. This is what we. This is what yeah. we, Alan and I went through. Now... On the other side, we can say, oh, no, have those emotions. If you're going to be mad, there is a place for anger. There is a place for for upset and shocked. There is a place for all of those things. But do so 
not lashing out to the person. If you need to take a time out and come back to it, take a time out. This is really hurtful for me. I don't want you to, to, to watch Game of Thrones. This is, I, I, I don't like the media choice that you're making. Like, give me some time to really think about this. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, a, it's being okay or even, yeah. or even reacting in a fake way. I think it's yeah. being authentic to yourself and then, and then trying to talk about it, communicate about it. Because that's always we are um, we are one hundred percent emotions first. We'd like to think that we're a, a logical thinkers, but we're emotional people first. Mm-hmm. Especially me. <laughs> so, what does that? I mean, maybe you answered this, but having just said what you said, going back to that first time where you discovered the pornography use, knowing what you know now, how does that conversation go differently from your side? Well, I don't lock myself in my bedroom and give you the silent treatment for weeks or. It, for weeks. That's, there's the key. I one, mean, right? there's the key. I would you, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, you say it here we are, we're sitting here, we're at we're a computer, sitting here, we're at a computer. I find some, if, if you I find ever something, find anything, I would say, what is this? And I admit to it. Let's say I, you admit uh, to well, it. yeah, I looked at like, this pornography. That really is disappointing to me. We're going to go back to your mom and your dad example. I'm not going to yell at you, but I'm going to show you I'm disappointed. I may cry about it and I may need some time alone to rage clean or to go to my room or whatever before we can revisit it. But that's how I handle it. So then what's different about it? The the length of time? No, to come back to it. The difference is that I'm not blaming you for how, for saying like, you are making me feel this way, right? I'm acknowledging that. I have pain. I have sadness about this and I'm communicating that with you. Right. So, you know, when I'm talking to the Bishop and the temple recommend gets taken away, um, is part of this, like if it would have gone the way it should have is part of this, you telling me in the moment, like, look, I'm not happy about your behavior, but I'm sorry that the Bishop reacted this way. Absolutely. I think that would have done a lot of healing for me in the yeah, moment. Right. And that's not me calling you out. Like, why didn't you say that? It's just like, no better, do better. So in that moment, that would have been something that would have been a healthier way of responding to it. Um, I'm trying to think of what else would have been a healthier way on both of our sides of, of responding to it. Because I think the way that, it, that both of us handled it is it did drive it deeper into the secrecy. It did. And it did cause escalation where, and, and, and again, we're, we're very close. And this might be close to the time where we, we tie it back to an actual sex therapist. But it, it's when it's... When it's normalized, when this behavior is normalized, not meaning um, accepted or just do what you want, but when it's when it's treated as I can understand why this is something that that you would do, let's let's handle it and and talk about it in a healthy way. Yeah, I think that that is for a sex therapist. If you are having problems, if I, I didn't know therapy. I had I had never known anyone that had went to therapy mm-hmm. when we got married or when we were going through this, never had a clue that that was even an option for married couples to go and talk to someone who knew about this particular and, and could give us good tools and could give us good advice. That was not even anywhere in my, my line of vision. Right. So I think that if there is something that you can't work out between your spouse, it is imperative that you find a therapist or a sex therapist to go to, to talk to you about 
the sexual shame that you feel or the pornography use or that whatever it might be, it doesn't have to be, we're just, I'm giving these examples because this is the topic that we're on. But I think that there has to be repair attempts in trust building, right? So yeah, you're not going to do things in secret anymore. You're going to tell me about them. And if it's too hard to tell me about them, we're going to go to a therapist and talk to the therapist about them. Mm -hmm. So we have a, on February 11th, 2021, right now we're on the fourth. So it's a week from today. We're having a sex and intimacy course, a, a 90 minute zoom meeting with Natasha Helfer, who is a certified sex therapist. This is part of our full six week course. It's kind of a bonus week, but we're holding this one independently uh, of the rest of the course as kind of a Valentine's day, you know, sex and intimacy is on the mind during that time of the year. And so we wanted to have, mind. well, it's on my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should stop recording. <laughs> uh, this is our way. I think the, the bridge between this topic and kind of promoting that course is calling attention to the questions that Katie and I are not answering on this episode. Is pornography use okay? From a therapist's perspective, is it normal? Is it okay? And the answer isn't yes or no. And, and Natasha t- can talk about that. And we can reference back to episodes with Jennifer Finlayson Fife mm-hmm. that she answers these questions. And it yeah. is and Natasha's not, first episode with us too. She right. talks about it. Yeah. And it is not a black and white answer. Right. Every couple is different. Every value of each couple is very different. What about sexuality in children? Well, this is a mixed faith marriage. Big hot topic. Big topic. Pornography in children. Sexual activity before marriage. What is what does the sex therapist say about that? That's right. those are questions that we talk about. What else is talked about in that? I think that, especially for us, maybe it would have been useful to talk about like high libido and low libido partners mm-hmm. because I think back to that first experience with us, and I think, well, you know, I was pregnant. I was probably like low libido, right? right then. And this isn't giving excuses for anything. But again, that's not the type of language that we had to talk about. Hey, I need my my needs met. I need to I need what's in the toolbox. There is a toolbox of things you can use in your marriage when one partner is high libido and one partner is low libido. And you have to go through that together as a couple to see like, what are we okay with here? Yeah. Right. And so then there's, there's masturbation the is one of them. Let's, let's talk about like, that's with Natasha. We talk about negotiating the tenders. How do we negotiate those things that are the, sex, so the sexual tenders? Yes. And, and again, if you're like us and you don't talk about it for 12 years until right. you're, you're forced to on a podcast, it may never get talked about, talked yeah. about. And every couple is different, but in our experience for us, it's been better to, voice those concerns out loud. You're going to experience that discomfort, that awkwardness in those conversations. So the goal of those, those open conversations is not to be totally fine with what's being said and what's being heard. Right. (laughs) It's to, to confront the discomfort and that's where the intimacy comes from. And again, not keeping things secret, right? Because it will not thrive in your marriage. 
Yeah. If, if you're listening to this and this has been interesting because you got to see, <laughs> you got to see into our lives a little bit more, uh, you, you're know way too much about a little voyeuristic episode maybe, but if, if you're listening to this and it resonates at all, we've tried to make this sex and intimacy course with Natasha to finish off this, this episode. <laughs> That was the wrong terminality. It's it's building to a climax with, no. with Natasha. Uh, that's, here's how you can sign up for that course if you want to do it. It's $69. Yes, we did that on purpose because we think we're funny. And uh, you go to marriageonatightrope.thinkific.com. The link is in the show notes. There's almost a two-hour presentation as well as we give you tightrope and actions are homeworks to do together so that you can talk through some of these things. And then you can join us on Thursday, February 11th, live at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time for a question and answer. So after you watch the presentation and you have all of the questions, you can send them to us either privately, anonymously, or you can ask it in the group. We are not going to call on you. Don't feel... Yeah, there's no calling out there's of, no of calling anybody. You. And also, if you don't want to share your camera with us, you don't or have to. Or your real to. name. You know, in, in Zoom meetings, name. most everyone, because of the pandemic, knows how to use Zoom. So you can change your Zoom name so it's not even your real name. Right. Uh, but that 90 minutes on Zoom is for you to ask questions of a sex therapist. Katie and I might share our experience, but we've done a lot of that here. We already did it. <laughs> no need. You you know, this is a really hard subject, and I feel like people will be tender and triggered. And I'm sure so many of you had experiences like this in your youth, both positive and negative with leaders. And it's taken us, guys, it's taken us this long, 12, 13 years to get here where we can talk about it with all of you. So I hope you found it informational, if not helpful. Maybe this is something you can go back and a lot of couples say they listen to the podcast together and then they talk about it. So maybe... Good luck. Maybe, but maybe this just gives you a little bit of a pathway to speak about something that's super tender to you as well. That's right. Katie, thank you for talking about this. It was hard. I know it's hard. And I, hey, we're talking about like my quote mess ups and all that. And, and so, no, I, you know, I, it's tough. I don't think it's, I'll end with this. I don't think it's a mess up at all. I think that the messages that we now will perpetuate to our children are going to be very different than what we learned. I'm glad that you brought that up before we ended. And, and, you know, we are all about very much love and compassion and good science and, and what studies have shown. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we will treat our children in that way. And I think that they'll grow up in a much better place you know, surrounding these ideas of sexual shaming and fear, um, they'll they'll grow up in a better place than we did, and that's the best that we can do. And that's not lip service coming from Katie, by the way, because just a couple of weeks ago, you you talked to our fourteen year old and asked him to uninstall Netflix on his phone because there is content on there that is not meant for developing brains, and that's how you put it. Like Jackson, you have a developing brain. And you don't know how sexual relationships are supposed to look. So if you learn about that from media, you'll have a skewed perception of what it's supposed to be. And that can really impact your relationship in the future with women. Yeah. So 
And I told him, I said, you know, there's a place for sex and intimacy. And when you are an adult, you can make that decision. Bingo. When you're an adult, you can make that decision. But for right now, uh, we want you to not have access to that. You know, he, he talks about how he knows exactly how to drive a car. Has he ever driven the car? Like twice, you know, from, from church to home. And two from two home, blocks away. Right. <laughs> And and so again, I'm not going to do a big teaser, but Natasha has talked about this with us before that developing minds need an environment where they don't think that the media is right in all of what they portray as intimate relationships. Right. Again, no better, do better. I'm sure that all of you will do the same and you're currently doing the same as you navigate your own your your own home and um parent style with your kids. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on Marriage in a Tightrope. As you saw, this was episode 99. We're excited to get episode 100. We have a few good ideas, which we're not going to tease right now. But we have a few fun ideas for episode 100, which should be coming out in the next few weeks. If you want to follow us on Facebook, we just hit 2,000 members, which is kind of fun. Yay, more people are experiencing really difficult things. (laughs) Uh, You can go to Facebook and follow us there. You can follow us on Instagram uh, as well. And And you can email us. If you like this episode, please please. give us feedback, because these are the hard ones for us to do. Yeah, and you can email us, us at marijanatightrope at gmail.com. You can message us on Facebook, on Instagram. We are pretty much everywhere. Ellen's got a TikTok. I do. Uh, We've got a marriage on a tightrope TikTok. My TikTok is for non-believers. Let's be clear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say one last thing. If, if you don't personally need or are ready for um, doing our course or the sex and intimacy, but you want to contribute... Uh, to the podcast and support us. It is very much needed and very much appreciated. The way that we prefer, you can, of course, just donate via Venmo at Marriage on a Tightrope. But the way that we prefer is helping future couples that need to take the course but are in financial need. And there's a lot of couples, pandemic I'm thinking of, uh, as the reason why. But you can always send us a donation through Venmo at Marriage on a Tightrope or through the marriageonatightrope.org website and earmark it and put in there scholarship for the course or just the word scholarship. And we'll know exactly what it's for. We have a, you need a budget account and we include a category for scholarships so that we know exactly how much money is for those couples. Uh, that's the plug that I have. Katie, anything else? I think that's it. Thanks for listening. And we will see you on the 100th episode. Kisses. We're going to see that it was better. That we grew up together Tell me you don't want to leave Cause if change is what you need You can change right next to me When you're high, I'll take the lows You can ebb and I can flow We'll take it slow And grow as we go